The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we talk with Dr. Rachel Gross, an assistant professor and historian of the outdoor industry, about the legacy of Bob Gore and the impact of Gore-Tex. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me again, round three, uh, Dr. Rachel Gross, Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. Thanks for joining me again. Happy to be here. Thanks, Chase. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to you about uh, outdoor history. There's, There's not many of us who are diving into into the history of the outdoor industry although more and more the more i dig there's there's more people who are doing it but but you're the one who's really um doing it from that academic perspective and i always appreciate your your perspectives um on the history and and how you're able to look at it in a larger context so um i wanted to to have you on uh to talk a little bit about Bob Gore, um, especially with with the recent piece that you wrote um, that I read, and I recommend everyone take a look at it as well. Um, Bob Gore's Cozy Revolution, uh, published in science, uh, by the Science History Institute, and I'll link to that in the description um, as well. But uh, in light of Bob's passing, um, is, is that is that what inspired this piece, or was this something that you had been thinking about um, for a while? Um, so I've written about Gore-Tex for years um, and um, even got the chance to go to the W.L. Gore and Associates archives a, a number of years ago. Um, but I think uh, when I heard that Bob Gore had passed away, I wanted to reflect on what, his, what I thought his legacy had been for outdoor recreation and the outdoor industry. So it was for me a chance to think back over the research I'd done over many years and to put together some thoughts and, and, and luckily for me, some really cool images that help explain why, why do people care so much about Gore-Tex, even if they don't actually use the material itself. Right. There, uh, there's so many interesting questions and so many different um, ways we could take this conversation. But Gore-Tex to me is such an interesting company. Um, especially now I, I look around and there's, you have people who have no interest in going outside wearing Gore-Tex, um, it, it, it's a statement more than anything for, for some people. It, it, Gore-Tex just means so many different things to different people, especially now. Um, it's interesting to look back and, and um, just see, kind of learn about its origins, where it came from. Um, I don't know. I, it's just kind of hitting me in a different way recently when I see Gore-Tex and a, Gore-Tex and New Balance um, collaborations, you know, to make shoes. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if Bob Gore ever envisioned that happening, right? And, and Gore-Tex becoming this fashion item right. um, that, that it's become in some ways. So I, I thought it would be interesting at least to hit some of the high points um, of, you know, uh, those markers along, uh, along 
you know, Bob's path, uh, Bob's path um, to creating Gore-Tex and then maybe teasing out what, you know, what some of this means. But, um, you know, for, for those who don't really know the history of Gore um, as a company, I think a lot of people think of Gore-Tex and think, oh yeah, it's a, it's a fabric company, right? But it's, it's much bigger than that, right? Um, what, I guess, what was the state of, um, for those who don't know, and, and you're so good at looking at the larger context of, of things happening in, in uh, kind of the larger world, um, what, what was happening in the early days when Bill and Vive Gore, um, I guess, were getting into the materials business? I guess mm-hmm. Bill you know, started working for DuPont. What was the state of materials at that time? Sure. Um. World is really the turning point that historians look at when they're starting to understand how did synthetic materials become so widespread in everyday American life. And Bill Gore, right, who worked for DuPont, was a part of that revolution in materials. His focus uh, as a chemical engineer was on uh, the material uh, Teflon, right, which we uh, contemporary consumers know as the nonstick pan coating um, that help us make better scrambled eggs. Um, but his, um, his vision was that, you know, DuPont had this really great material, but they weren't applying it in all the places where he thought it would be useful. Now, the, the biggest context for this, something that maybe the listeners might have heard of, is this notion that synthetic materials could offer better living through chemistry, right? There was a lot of excitement about the promise of innovations in the immediate post-war period, and nylon and other synthetics were high on that list. So when Bill Gore decided to leave DuPont's plastics division and start focusing on this material, Teflon or polytetrafluoroethylene, PTFE, he was a part of a much bigger set of people who saw a lot of promise and potential in these new materials and wanted to see them applied, not just in a narrow set of industries, but broadly, right? It, it wasn't that Bill Gore knew this is going to be the revolutionary outdoor material uh, decades down the line, but he had a lot of faith in PTFE broadly. And so he wouldn't have been surprised to learn that it was going to have applications even in outdoor recreation. Right. What, what were the other, uh, certainly DuPont, the other big material company, what, what were the materials um, in the outdoor industry that, that were being used? Nylon, right? It's a DuPont material. Mm-hmm. Um, really came of age in the World War II period, right? That was kind of the major innovation during the war. Is that right? Or earlier? Yeah. So, so nylon was created in the late 1930s. The U.S. military used it in a limited fashion during World War II, in part because there wasn't a lot of supply. Um, the people who were in charge of designing uh, uniforms and equipment were so excited about the potential for nylon, especially because when considering the challenges of designing for uh, soldiers in very humid conditions where things could get moldy, nylon seemed like a really good solution. But they didn't have access to it, in part because the Air Force was using so much of DuPont's nylon for parachutes. So by 1944, 1945, um, DuPont was finally producing enough that um, designers of uniforms and equipment could finally start experimenting with nylon, for instance, with sleeping bags, with mountain tents and things like that. So the military did help introduce this material near the end of the war, but it was really in the immediate post-war period that nylon started to be used more broadly in outdoor recreation applications. Um, And so um, uh, in the 1950s, you would have seen uh, nylon appear as a material for sleeping bags, tents, 
rain jackets. Um, uh, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't totally revolutionize how uh, people understood their equipment and what that meant for how their bodies would interact with extreme weather environments. Um, uh, and that was in part because so many manufacturers were still experimenting with the type of nylon that they used and what materials to use alongside it. So a good example of that is Sierra Design's 6040 jacket, um, which used both nylon and cotton, right, to have a mix of uh, water uh, resistance and breathability, right? Mm. Nylon alone was not breathable, and so manufacturers were always experimenting, trying to find something that would work more effectively to allow sweat to escape. This was in part why um, Gore-Tex, a little bit later down the line, came to be seen as a revolutionary um, material because it seemed to fulfill the promise that people had put on nylon initially and then realized nylon wasn't going to fulfill, which was to be both waterproof and breathable. Mm. Oh, that's great. Um, what, I, I guess I'm, I'm jumping forward again. Um, Gore, so Bob ends up leaving DuPont, kind of seeing a material that he sees potential in. He does, I don't know if he necessarily sees this is going to be the outdoor, you know, fabric, like you said, like you said earlier, but what, what were some of his frustrations? Just, um, you know, he saw potential application um, and, and maybe what, what were some of those potential applications that he saw um, mm-hmm. that were, weren't being taken advantage of? And, and he thought, oh, I, I could set out and, and do this mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. So his focus was much more on industrial applications. So think for instance of the, um, the things that help pipes stay sealed. So pipe, thread, tape, things like that. Um, but, but outdoor recreation was always in the back of his mind. This was in part because Bill and Vive were both enthusiastic outdoors people, right? They had been um, skiers in Utah earlier in their life. Um, once they were raising children, they often took their kids on family vacation, um, going camping, going hiking to the outdoors. And so in that sense, um, outdoor applications were never far from his mind. And so what he would do is, even as he's thinking more about, okay, how might uh, people working in industry make use of this interesting material, he was also experimenting on the weekends and at night with inflatable sleeping mats or new designs for tents that would allow him to do fun things with his family. He never saw that as his primary business goal, but, um, but that idea was always percolating and he was always experimenting with those materials. Well, in, in that way, it seems like Bill is very much in the mold. Bill and Vive are very much in the mold of, I guess, other tinkerers, right? Outdoor tinkerers. What we think of when we think of the outdoor founder, right? It's the, the mm-hmm. you know, this certainly, you know, comes, well, a little later, right? It's like Yvonne Chouinard, like hammering out, um, you know, climbing equipment in, in the shed. Um, it's, it, it seems like that's the type of person that we think of when we think of the outdoor founder or, or the person that's making their own their own gear so it's, it seems like he's in that mold but the difference is is his access to to materials and that that science background which i think we start to see some of the individuals like that like the uh, jack stevenson right someone who's kind of the outsider who comes in with an engineering background and brings new perspective to the outdoor industry and, and then births, you know, new innovations um, from that. Uh, and any thoughts there? It, it seems like that interesting combination is where we see um, a lot of the innovations that, that come to the outdoor industry. Yeah. I think you've, you've described something that 
that um, that we see consistently across decades in the outdoor industry. Innovations often come from people who are participants themselves, but who have some kind of uh, professional training that allows them to experiment with, with confidence, right? They make lots of mistakes, but they know at least what they're doing with the materials. Most often though, it's not chemical engineers, but often folks who are trained as engineers, but work in the aerospace industry that make a lot of these innovations, especially as it relates to backpacking. Um, so Bill Gore does stand out to me because he has a different set of, um, or different kind of expertise, right? His working with materials, not aluminum, but rather different kinds of plastics, and that yields different innovations. Right. Yeah. On, on the aluminum side, right, we see that with, with um, well, with the North Face creating the oval intention, right? They were able to create, you know, that, that shape because of the work that they did with, um, with Easton aluminum, right? And adapting, adapting that. Yeah. And you might see a kind of a, a regional trend as well. So many of the people who worked in the aerospace in- industry as engineers were um, uh, based on in the West Coast. And that's because of federal government expansion in military contracts in the post-war period, right? So Los Angeles, for instance, had a big aerospace industry. And so many of the backpacking innovations, right? Think um, what's going on with Andy Drollinger at A16 or with Dick Kelty, um, right? They're, they're working in that milieu. Um, and again, Bill Gore stands out because his operation is based in the East Coast of the United States, as opposed to so much of the work that's going on in the outdoor industry during the same time, which is based in the American West. This is why I love these conversations, because you're able to frame the outdoor industry within the larger context of what's happening and these these larger forces that are happening in the country and in the world that then influence the outdoor industry. And I, I don't really see anyone else who's framing it that way. Um, and so that's why I especially appreciate the work that you do. It, like that was an insight for me, you know, just, just hearing that. Um, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I, what, what you said was just really um, interesting. It's this combination, right. Of, of users um, who have access to, to like a, a specific skill set or training or, or a material um, is where that innovation comes from. I, I, I think, I, I guess around the same time, you know, post, post-war period, you have Jerry and, and the Holy Bars in, in Colorado. Um, it's, it's interesting that well, they had access to the military surplus, right? That, that was the material that they had access to. That's where they figured out, okay, this is the gear I like, what I don't like, what works, what doesn't. Um, it would be interesting to see what, what would they have been able to create if they had access to the material that, that you know, bill would have access to right it's 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 all kind of a it seems like a question of circumstance and and access to materials um i I don't know i I, i'm not sure if there's a question there but it it is interesting that um Mm -hmm. you know that access is such an important piece to where innovation can come from it certainly is. And, um, and we do know based on the um, records that Alice Hollybar left, which you can find at the Boulder Public Library, um, that a lot of the materials that she was getting initially came from Europe. And that was in part because, you know, as somebody who is uh, born in Germany and, um, and fluent in more than just English, she was able to correspond with people who manufacture equipment in other countries as well. And so that, you know, just as uh, Bill's professional training shaped kind of his imagination, right? What he thought was possible, what he thought to include in his transparent plastic tents, right? Uh, um, so too did Alice Hollybar's background shape 
her sense of what was possible or what kinds of new materials to incorporate into her designs. Right, right. Um, well, well, we'll jump forward a little bit um, because it, it is that, that transparent tent that seems to have a significant impact on uh, Bill and Vive's son, Bob, right? Um, and going camping, um, you know, being raised in this, um, you know, in a family that, um, you know, with, with two parents to kind of work in, in this industry, but also value outdoor recreation, it seemed like the perfect environment for someone to um, create some, some new material. I don't know if there's a, a better circumstance, um, you know, for, for Gore-Tex to be created, but um, do you mind just, just sharing a little bit? I know it's in the article and I encourage everyone to, to go and read that, but just I guess maybe the the story of Gore-Tex itself, right? How how you know Bob ends up working for the company, um, and you know through tinkering with the materials, you know comes across, um, well, just discovers that this material could be be a fiber or could be turned mm-hmm. into a fiber. Sure. So we had talked a bit about the kind of experimenting with outdoor equipment that both. Bill Gore and later his son Bob had been doing. But in 1969, um, when Bob had already received his PhD and come back to the family company, he wasn't focused on outdoor recreation. Instead, he was working with PTFE, um, polytetrafluoroethylene, and trying to make it cheaper and more usable in a sheet form because that would allow the company to improve on the pipe thread tape they had been producing for a while. And so it was really a serendipitous kind of experiment, right? After stretching these cords of the material over and over, Bob was frustrated. And in his frustration, he yanked them apart once rather than carefully stretching them as he had been doing. And he realized that they radically expanded far more than he ever could have imagined when he yanked them fast and really hard. And so uh, the next morning, he called in his father and other people who worked at the company and said, look, this material, these cords of PTFE, um, expand in a way that we hadn't previously understood. And that was the material that would become Gore-Tex, expanded PTFE. It was almost an accident, but of course, Bob had both professional training and this notion that if only he could stretch it properly, he would find the kind of pipe thread tape sheeting that he was looking for. So... Outdoor recreation was not at the forefront of his mind, but once this material was created, EPTFE, it meant a whole new ballgame in, in terms of applications for the material, right? And um, because of the work that the Gore family had done over the years, they knew that among those many applications, one might be outdoor recreation. Um, and so the, it wasn't a big leap for them to say, okay, the semi-permeability of this material, the fact that it has tiny pores where water droplets would be kept out, but vapor, so what the body produces when it sweats, could escape, has a lot of promise for tents, for rainwear, and for other materials that would be of use to outdoors people as well. Right. It, with Without that user background or without being a family that participates in the outdoors, it, I, I find it hard to believe that they would understand the significance of the outdoor industry. And again, we're talking about the outdoor industry in the seventies, right? So not, not what it is today. Um, but, but still a growing industry. Uh, If they hadn't been users, I I don't know if they would have recognized, Oh yeah, there's, there's a potential market here. They may have just focused on, you know, the spacesuits, Gore-Tex for spacesuits, right? Which which was an application, right? Um, Which, so I do think that's possible. And also in addition to their personal experience, the Gores had the benefit of having read 
DuPont studies on potential future applications of PTFE from years back. And so in that sense, this isn't something that they came up with on their own. Rather, within the chemical industry, it was well known that um, an expanded version of the PTFE material would have lots of other kinds of applications. It was their job to find out what those might be. So in that sense, they were not alone. They just were the ones to come up with how to expand it. Right, right. Um, and, and then, you know, you mentioned as early as 1970, they have prototype Gore-Tex tents, right, for, for personal use, or they're experimenting with the material, right, themselves. And, and the family goes back out on those, those family excursions to test the, the Gore-Tex tents. And um, it, 1976 is when a brand first takes the leap, right, early winters. Um, and I guess I keep going back to this. I've had conversations um, with, with Bruce Johnson about this. Um, I just have such a hard time uh, understanding how um, a company, a small company like Early Winters, was able to get in touch with, um, you know, Gore and order this material. Like, how? What was the reputation of Gore and Gore-Tex? I mean, this was the first the first company that really applied the material. Um, I'm I'm just trying to understand what that conversation might have looked like. Um, mm. How much convincing that might have taken Gore-Tex to or or Early Winters to take a chance on a material that isn't what it is today. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, so I don't know what the conversation itself was, but but I think we can imagine in some ways. Outdoor companies had been looking for a miracle material that was both waterproof and breathable for decades. So the idea that it was possible was at the forefront of manufacturers' minds for long before, from long before the existence of the Gore company. Right? There had been promises of similar kinds of materials in the 1920s, in the 1950s. Mm. And so in the 1970s, chemical companies were, had an increasingly uh, prominent role within the outdoor industry. This was in part because companies like Early Winters, just like Sierra Designs or Banana Equipment, were used to working with them to order nylon and to mm. order nylon blends to make rainwear, to make sleeping bags, to make other kinds of equipment. So the relationship itself wouldn't have been unusual, right? To have outdoor equipment and clothing designers talking with chemical manufacturers because they needed that material. Mm. So in that sense, this was part of a longer conversation and uh, other companies had already taken the leap with similar kinds of promising sounding materials in the years prior. So Gore and Gore-Tex was just one in a long line of materials that promised to be the miracle answer to the question people had been searching for. Um, it turned out to not be perfect right away, in fact, but it was only after the fact that we look back and say, gosh, it's amazing that early winters took it up so early. But, but in fact, there had been so many experiments um, and integration of new uh, chemical laminates in the years before. So this was just one in a long line of experiments. Well, it seems like that's just in the nature of the outdoor industry. It's, it's baked in that, oh, we need lighter, faster, stronger. You know, there's, there's kind of this interest in, uh, it, uh, you look at outdoor users now and it's, these are the people who count every gram of what's in their pack, right? It seems like that's a common thread um, throughout, throughout the outdoor industry. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of see that here, right? People looking for the latest and greatest, you know, from other industries that they could pull in, um, th those innovations that could apply to, to the outdoor industry. Um, you mentioned it, it not being particularly successful in the beginning with early winters. There's being some issues, like I feel like there, there usually are with, with 
anything new, um, but a leaking happening um, at the seams and this leading to seam tape. Um, and uh, I don't know how much you've dug into the history of seam tape, but uh, is this kind of a first instance where, where seam tape is, is used on a garment? Mm-hmm. So it's the first that I know of, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the first, um, but certainly the seam tape story is interesting. First generation Gore-Tex, which early winters and other companies made use of in 1976, came with some problems. And that wasn't because the material, the laminate itself, didn't work. In the, in the lab and in the field, if used properly, according to company recommendations, it absolutely did. The problem was that, of course, users didn't always have the flexibility to be very cautious with their rain jackets. So that meant um, it, the pores could become contaminated with body oils, and it meant that the holes along the seams, for instance, um, where the shoulder and the arm came together, um, could have bigger, too big of holes, right, because of the needle, um, and that allowed for water to seep through. So these were some of the ways that there were problems. Um, Gore's uh, approach to dealing with this was to accept returns, to say, okay, you're right, this isn't perfect. And they accepted millions of dollars worth of products in returns of Gore-Tex first generation um, as they worked on improvements and seam tape, right, where um, there was an additional Gore-Tex laminate that went over all of these seams from the inside of the garment was one solution. Factory sealed seams allowed this problem, right, sometimes caused by user error, to be solved before the um, outdoor uh, consumer ever purchased the jacket or the other item. And so this was one way that Gore was able to address some of these initial concerns. And so second generation and third generation Gore-Tex did work better than the first generation. But I'd, I'd, I'd have to say, like, if you're looking at innovations in the outdoor industry, um, in, in outerwear in particular, the use of seam tape, uh, I don't know if, if we talk about that enough, right? That, that's, a, that's a huge innovation, um, which, which seems it's just standard right now. Any of, any of your, your jackets that you look at, um, you know, well, a lot of them, you'll see that seam tape on the inside. Um, and I imagine that leads to, you know, probably hard to trace back, um, you know, some of the future innovations that we see back to this moment. But now we see welded outerwear, right, where there's there's no no thread used, right? It's welded garments and then seam tape on the inside. Um, so it seems like this is so early um, for this type of innovation to happen. And and I I see so many other innovations that build off of the use of seam tape. And I don't know if if those innovations ever, uh, you know directly attribute, you know, mm-hmm. welding fabrics together back to this, but it's a building block that I imagine leads to, to that, that innovation in the future. I do think um, the transition to factory sealed seams also signals another important shift with the outdoor industry, but it's not leading to innovation, but to a real shift in consumer behavior. And that is prior to seam tape, consumers used seam stuff, right? Uh, basically goop to to spread on the inside of their tent or jacket seams to seal the seal to seal the seams themselves at home right mm. they were they knew that they were responsible for adding that additional level of protection to their clothing and equipment um, as the user themselves and factory sealed seams meant they no longer had to do that kind of work, right? The expectation was that right off the rack, this gear was ready to go and should perform perfectly just as the company promised. And I think what you can see then is with seam tape, a broader transition away from user modified garments and equipment towards an expectation that everything off the rack is 
uh, perfectly calibrated for the kinds of activities that it's going to be used for. Um, right? So consumers are less involved in modifying equipment after seam tape. So interesting that you see around the same time, and I, I might have my date slightly off, but at the same time that this is happening and this user expectation that my garment comes off the rack ready to go, you also have Frostline kits, right? We're sending you kits in the mail that you assemble yourselves, but that, that, that declines, right? And I, is that around the same time? We're talking oh, 70s. Absolutely. So yeah, you're, yeah. You're, the timeline is exactly right. And in fact, I would say that Gore and other chemical manufacturers that create this um, high-end kind of, kind of high-end material are partially responsible for the demise of DIY kit companies in the early 1980s. And that's in part because of things like seam tape, where customers realize that no matter how good they are at sewing, no matter how careful they are with seam stuff on their seams, there's no way that a handmade garment could reach the level of perfection that a factory produced one could, right? So in many cases, um, they're looking for Gore-Tex levels of rain protection, but what you can do at home with a Frostline kit, even if that Frostline kit comes with Gore-Tex, which it did by the end of the 1970s, um, the jackets didn't look the same. And so I think in that way, um, Gore and other chemical manufacturers, right, these high-tech equipment companies are partially responsible for why consumers no longer were interested in making their gear at home. Yeah, it, it just really seems like with the rise of, of Gore, there was no way that, that a company like Frostline would, would be able to, to exist, right? It was just the consumer preferences were just changing, right, that, that quickly. It's interesting because I feel like now would be the time for both those types of companies to thrive, right? People want performance. And so they can go to a Gore-Tex to get performance, but there's such a DIY community, a crafting community, a thrifting community. It seems like a Frostline kits could potentially, you know, uh, operate today on a much uh, smaller scale. But um, it's interesting to see how that pendulum has has swung here in the present day. Um, that interest in performance, but also an interest in in having something that I made myself that crafting um, side yeah, of things I think, as well. I think that's a great business idea. A lot of people who learn about DIY kits for the first time now say, I would love to do that. And I think the major ingredient that we're missing is the decline of home economics education in American classrooms. Um, and I think there are all sorts of reasons for that. I, I don't know how to sew myself. So, so I'm one of those people who would potentially love this idea, but really don't have the skills to back it up. Um, and I, I think that's kind of a part of a, a broader conversation about changing expectations about both American education and also gender roles, right? That mm -hmm. there aren't enough people who would necessarily know how to sew these pieces of equipment effectively. Right. Yeah. And the, there's a few people that I know right now who, who buy the Frostline kits who don't actually make what is in the pattern, right? It's like they love the idea. They love the brand. Um, there's, there's an interview that we did recently with, with an individual um, who started a company called Sand. And he's been doing kind of a one-off project where he buys Frostline kits and reimagines them into something else. Um, so they have the label on there you know, mixed with his, his brand, but he takes a, a, a Frostline kit parka and makes a tote out of it and wow. reimagines it in a way that helps tell the story of Frostline kits, but in a, in a new way. And, mm -hmm. you know, his, his attempt is to, um, you know, shed light on this company that, and this way of making things that is, is being forgotten. So kind of an interesting tangent. We could go down, down, down that train of thought. I, I, I think Frostline Kits is a fascinating company and, and interesting that even people in the outdoor industry don't really know that much about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
so along those lines, you know, uh, the, the rise of, of Gore-Tex, what, what I keep coming back to and kind of how we started the conversation is Gore-Tex becomes a brand and I still can't really reconcile how that happens. And maybe you can shed some light on that, but you know, within, you know, the next decade or so, um, the company becomes a, a recognizable brand. People know that this material is that miracle material, right? Um, and it, I, I don't know, it develops a following. Like what were the ingredients that went into a material company becoming a recognizable brand? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned a little earlier that um, by the 1970s, outdoor manufacturers were, were very used to working with chemical manufacturers to integrate new materials into their products. Um, what companies like Gore uh and also DuPont and 3M and others started to do by the mid-1970s is advertise their technological innovations as separate from any outdoor brand. So for instance, what you could find in a magazine like Outside or Backpacker by the end of the 1970s was an advertisement designed by the folks at Gore saying it's a great day for Gore-Tex, right? Was showing somebody, you know, with a jacket out on a rainy day or something like that. There was no, you can't buy a jacket from Gore. You couldn't back then either, right? You'd have to go to a place like uh, the North Face, right? To find a Gore-Tex jacket um, that was integrated into the North Face design. But these kinds of advertisements raise the profile of the technological innovations and help to educate consumers about why they were so revolutionary. So you'll see from Gore or from DuPont advertisements that, that highlight, here's what on a micro, like a microscopic level, what this technology looks like. If we zoom way in, what does the material look like, right? What is the synthetic insulation and how does it operate? You can also see them making use of um, uh, heat photography, right? To show off, look how, look how warm everybody stays if they wear this kind of synthetic insulation. I'm thinking of holophil or qualophil from DuPont in those instances. Um, so these chemical companies are really good at education, right? Teaching not just consumers in Backpacker Magazine, but also people who work in retail stores about the materials in order to then educate the consumers themselves. So they spend a lot of the time focusing on branding at the level of um, consumer interaction so that people, when they pick up a jacket with a gore hang tag, they understand not just that there's some tech inside, but exactly how it operates and what that technology ought to feel like on their bodies when it's operating correctly, right? That's the level of education that Gore was thinking about. And they were really effective at that. And they were mirrored by lots of other chemical companies at the same time. Most of the ads are actually from chemical companies rather than from individual brands for a few years. And I think that's a remarkable innovation. It seems so normal now, but that was a very new approach to advertising in the 1970s. Well, I, uh, as I mentioned before, I, I feel like you see the influence of that today um, where you have hype beasts, right? Who are wearing, wearing Gore-Tex clothing, but you know, not going outside or myself, right? Wearing a Gore-Tex jacket, but not climbing a mountain, right? There's kind of the seeds of that, like the status symbol that, that Gore-Tex becomes in a way. Um, and, and, and it becomes a statement piece. Um, and more and more now than ever, I, I feel like, and that's, that's what really brought me to this question is what are the origins of that? Like, how does a material company become a brand? Um, you know, you mentioned a couple other companies that were trying to do the same thing. I don't know if there's any that have have reached that same level as Gore-Tex. 
um, uh, at least on the fabric side, I imagine with the insulation companies, synthetic down companies like a Primaloft, there's some of that, but, but I think they have their own challenges of, well, I can't see the material that's keeping me warm. Whereas a Gore-Tex, I, I feel it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's close to me. I can touch it. Whereas a, an insulation, I, I never see that material. Um, think, so Gore did have an advantage um, in terms of establishing a kind of status that synthetic insulation producers did not have. And that was part of the benefit of synthetic insulation was that in addition to being better at dealing with moisture, right, than, than down was if it got wet, um, it was sometimes or often cheaper, right? Down was quite expensive. Whereas Gore from the beginning priced Gore-Tex um, based on its value in the market, not what it cost to produce. And that meant a very high cost for consumers. That was a benefit for people who were eager to show off um, this uh, high-tech equipment and also their status. Um, but it did limit access in some ways um, and it, it helped the brand stand out in a different way than the vast swaths of synthetic insulations that were more broadly available and more widely used. Well, that, that brings me to the question of this barrier to entry to, to access the outdoors, right? It's like, um, and we kind of see both sides of this, right? In in some of the advertisements that you share um, in your article, um, Gore-Tex, there's it's the status symbol. Symbol, it's expensive. Um, you don't necessarily need it to get outdoors, right? But it's marketed in a way that, okay, I I do need this to to get outside and participate, and that can that can be a really daunting experience. But on the flip side, one of the advertisements that you share. Um, it, it, the the title is has uh, has no plans to cross Antarctica by dog sled doesn't even own a dog you know this '90s ad um, saying well you you don't have to do all those extreme activities but you still need us to go and do you know whatever that casual outdoor activity is any thoughts there on on just the barrier to entry that you know some of these material companies you know even the the outdoor brands create for people to to access the outdoors. Since the origins of outdoor recreation in the 19th century, outdoor companies have been pushing back against the notion that uh, people who are the most expert at what they're doing don't need outdoor gadgets, right? They don't need stuff to help them commune with nature because they know how to build things with their hands or to create the experiences that they're looking for while still staying safe. So you can see it in this early 1990s ad, right? This woman has no plans to crash cross Antarctica by dog sled, but she still needs the jacket. Um, I hear the same kind of rhetoric, right, 100 years earlier, where companies are saying, look, um, you don't have to be at the extremes in order to want this material, whereas um, people who see themselves as the old timers or the real kind of core of, of the um, outdoor, uh, outdoor experience or outdoor community um, are often dismissing those more casual recreationists as not being authentic or doing things the right way. So I think this, the notion of, of equipment being a barrier to entry, both because of cost and because of experience, is a longstanding tension within the outdoor industry. And it's one that the industry has tried to push back against as they try to sell um, more items and encourage people to get back uh, to nature in greater numbers. Well, that kind of brings brings us to the question of sustainability, right? Um, and and the rise of Gore-Tex is, um, I mean, really right after you know the, the environmental movement, um, you know, in the in the sixties. Um, how, how did this company rise? You know, right after such a, a significant formative um, time for for that movement. Um, 
moving forward. I, it seems like that would be a really difficult, difficult time for a company like a Gore-Tex a chemical company to, to really take off and, and find its footing and, and, and grow into the future. What is that relationship like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're describing in the 1970s a time when many Americans evince a kind of distrust of uh, businesses, big business in particular, and also where they are more concerned about their consumer habits having an, an impact on the environments that they so loved. Uh, clothing, however, was usually exempted, especially after clothing, from these kinds of critiques. So that means that you see people who are very concerned for good reasons about pollution in cities or with the contamination of waterways who don't necessarily apply that same kind of logic to the plastic clothes that hang on their bodies and protect them from the rain. Um, I don't have one single explanation for why that's the case. I think mostly um, uh, outdoor consumers were celebrating the fact that new lightweight equipment allowed them to leave a lighter trace on the land, right? The um, origins of the lightweight leave no trace movement suggested that if you had the right kind of high tech equipment, you wouldn't need to chop down uh, wood for to create a fire because you have a stove. You wouldn't need to... Um, gather together branches on the ground um, because you had a sleeping pad with you. Um, and so that actually was the prevailing notion within the outdoor industry and, with, and among outdoor recreationists, right? That they could buy gear that better protects the environment, that leaves uh, less of a footprint on the land. They weren't thinking as much about what are the long-term health implications for the people who produce these kinds of chemical products? What are the long-term consequences of buying these products and then eventually needing to dispose of them when they've reached the end of their useful life. So I think that kind of thinking, which is so prevalent in the 21st century, had not yet come around to be applied to clothing, especially outdoor clothing. Um, It would take another couple of decades for people within the industry to start asking those questions. Well, that that really brings us to now, right? It seems like the same questions are being asked and and it doesn't seem there is one clear solution to this problem, right? You, there's there's strong opinions and strong arguments on both sides, right? Of well, synthetic, if you use synthetic, the the product will last longer, right? And you'll only need to be, buy one. Um, you know, versus oh, a biodegradable material that you know, will we'll break down, um, but you might have to buy more of them later on. Um, so again, we're, we're kind of finding ourselves in this, this, you know, having the same conversation decades later. Um, and I don't think we're going to solve it right here, but, and I don't think it's our, our place to do that either, but, um, but interesting to pull out, um, you know, just recognize that that's, this is a conversation that is ongoing. Um, you know, again, in just, paying attention to the time here. I don't want to take too much of your, your day, but um, if you could distill down, this is difficult, right? Someone's life. Um, you know, what, what are some of those long lasting impacts of, of, of Bob Gore in particular? Um, you know, certainly the creation of Gore-Tex, um, but what are some of those long lasting impacts that, that you've noticed or, or in your studies, your research? When Bob Gore had his uh, serendipitous discovery in a, in a laboratory at W. Gore and W. L. Gore and Associates office, um, his his work had long term consequences for Americans' notion of miracle materials in the outdoors. Right, they started to have this expectation that uh, if they were able to afford and find the right kinds of goods, that they would be the most protected, the most safe when pursuing outdoor activities. 
I think that's often a promise that goes unfulfilled, in part because as many experts today will attest, it's not just gear that's going to save you in extreme conditions, but rather your experience, right? Your ability to use your mind to, to think through what is the, the right choice here? What do I need to do to, to save myself? Um, but Gore-Tex um, and its synthetic fiber cousins um, often promise this kind of solution, right? To Americans by saying, if you buy the right stuff, you'll be able to um, kind of raise your own profile within the sport um, that you're trying to be a part of. You're able to look the part much more easily. Um, and I think that's ultimately where I see um, Bob Gore's surprising legacy. He had not expected to become a, you know, any kind of guru of the outdoors when he trained as a chemical engineer and went, went to work for his father's company. But in many ways, Gore-Tex had that kind of effect on the outdoor industry. It's a good stand-in, right? It's a good story that represents this broader shift towards Americans expecting that they'll look like experts as long as they buy the right stuff, right? As long as they have access to these kinds of specialized goods. Um, so I think we can see um, with Bob Gore's invention, the integration of high-tech synthetic materials like Gore-Tex, but lots of other ones too, into everyday Americans' closets um, and, and into daily use. You, you do such a great job of, of looking, and as a historian, looking at um, the industry in, in context and taking that step back. Um, I, I think you've really helped me understand the different eras of the outdoor industry uh, so much better from you know, the Civil War to present day um, roundabouts. Um, what, is, do you see Bob Gore as, as being the one who kind of ushers in the material age? Kind of the, is it the last era that you've defined roughly? Mm -hmm. Is it, it, I guess, what, what do you call that era? Isn't it a kind of the material age or I, I don't remember yeah. entirely. Yeah. I mean, I think it could be right. Like uh, I, I think um, if you look at uh, recent retrospectives, people often refer to the period from the 1970s forward as um, the age of synthetics, the space age, high tech part of the outdoor industry. Um, but I actually think that that kind of erases the, um, the complicated ways that people engage with materials, right? We, we mm. were just talking about the return of natural fibers to prominence within the outdoor industry. That started to happen in the 1990s. So it wasn't a response to the environmental movement necessarily, but it reflected the kind of slow percolation of a lot of the ideas of the environmental movement and people's recognition that guess what wool works really well and does a lot of the same things as these so-called miracle materials do as well so i think in many ways it feels too early to just say the 1970s to now now we're in the kind of high-tech era of materials because i think in many ways um what gore-tex and other synthetic signal is how people are paying attention more to what the materials do but they're not entirely reliant on one set, right? Rather, it's just they're attentive across the board, right, to Gore-Tex, but also to wool, right? And they're trying to understand in more detail what that means for their physical bodily experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Right, yeah. While, while we probably wouldn't give this age or this, this era the name of the synthetic age, right? It, if anything, it, it's the materials age in that, like you said, 
all of us are so much more conscious of of what we're consuming, what we're using, what things are made of. In that way, it's it's a material age um, because we're just thinking that you know. Hopefully, we're thinking that much harder about about what we're using and and how it's made, where it's made. Um, no, I love that because because like you said, wool has had such a, a resurgence, right? This it's one of the oldest materials, right? It's just like down, right? Down. Uh, natural down versus synthetic down. Down is 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 um, in a really good place right now as well. It's these natural materials are having a resurgence. So I I think that's a, a really good point. Um, you don't want to box in this era into to you know just the synthetic age or the tech age because in a lot of ways um, we're going back to a lot of those natural materials. But I think that that consciousness that thinking about material is is the key. Well, this this has been fun. Again, every time that we talk, I I learn so much. Um, and, and I appreciate you just being willing to, to share your time uh, with me and, and listeners. Uh, how, how do people, again, you know, you've shared this before. How do people stay in touch with your work? Um, how's the best way to reach you and, and uh, keep up with, with, you know, future publications as well as your past work? Sure. So uh, a couple of ways to do that. If you, if you want to chat right now, Twitter is the best way at Rachel S. Gross. Um, and um, I post all of these kinds of uh, articles on my website, uh, which is uh, rachel-gross.com. And um, I'm always looking for new ways to reach broader audiences, right? As you mentioned, uh, my primary focus is um, using an academic perspective to bring a broader context to the history of the outdoor industry. And that means I'm always looking for new material, right? There are so many stories to tell beyond the very big names or most famous fabrics even um, in the outdoor industry. And if people have um, uh, interest in hearing more of those stories, I'd be happy to be in contact about that. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. We're going to include the article that you wrote. Again, fantastic piece in the in the description as well. So make sure to take a look at that. But thank you again for taking the time. It's, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Chase. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. 